Today's Old Testament reading is from 1 Kings chapter 3. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued his great kindness, this great kindness to him, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never be have been anyone like you, nor, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Next reading is from Proverbs chapter 9. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her maids, and she calls from the highest point of the city. Let all who are simple come in here, she says to those who lack judgment. Come, eat my food, and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways, and you will live, walk in the way of understanding. And our gospel reading is from John chapter 6. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. You know, I always find it humbling to be able to worship and gather in a church that's located just a few blocks from the Capitol and from the Supreme Court of the United States. It's like a different world for most of us who don't get to enter into those buildings, but our proximity always reminds me of how American history is peppered with laws and decisions that seem to be right at the time that they are written. For instance, it used to be right and legal to own another human being that you could trade and sell and abuse and even kill without penalty. It used to be right and legal 
that only white land-owning men could vote. And out of good intent for Americans to be a little more sober, it used to be right and legal for uh, that the manufacture and distribution of alcohol was prohibited. It used to be right and legal for people to be segregated when they commuted on the train or the bus, or when they ate in restaurants, or where they, or where they went to school, or where they lived, in, the, in which neighborhood, and even where, which water fountain you could drink from, depending on the color of your skin. Also, it's the right of every American citizen in our democracy to challenge laws through the legal process, though that right is sometimes exercised a little bit too much to a fault, wouldn't you say? Because we Americans really like to take people to court. But laws like those I just mentioned were eventually changed so that we might progress to be a more fairer and equitable nation for all of our inhabitants. In our social media field culture, it's very easy to get your voice out and to listen to voices that shout, that's right, or that's so wrong, to whatever cause or whatever issue that comes to the top of your feed. Now, being right or wrong, whether it's on legal grounds or on moral grounds, is not always clear. What seems right at the moment, we find sometimes becomes wrong at a later time. I think most of us apply this kind of nuanced decision-making when we cross an intersection in the city here. According to DC law, did you know that pedestrians are not allowed to cross diagonally from across intersections? That's actually law. You can get ticketed for it, except for this intersection in Chinatown at 7th and North, uh, 8th Street Northwest. But how many of us have ever crossed an intersection diagonally? We used wisdom and discernment to judge the situation to determine the best course of action, even though on paper it is wrong. Or am I the only person who ever crosses intersections diagonally? When is a, when, there's sometimes, what is a right is not always right. What is wise might not always be viewed as the right, the good decision at the time, or a bad decision at another time, depending on your perspective and the situation. But what grounds do we use to determine what's right or wrong? And what we find that wisdom, true wisdom, is challenging and often seems elusive. In the selections of the lectionary readings this week, we'll see how God calls us to a life of wisdom. And as we come to know the living God, we also come to know these four things of wisdom, the goal of wisdom, the grace of wisdom, the gift of wisdom, and the way of wisdom. The goal, the grace, the gift, and the way. You know, the first king's passage that we just heard read, you know, describes this transition from King David to King Solomon. King David has just passed away. And it's a memorable passage for me personally, because growing up in the church, I always loved hearing this passage. Solomon was my hero. I mean, he had the humility to ask for wisdom, but he got like, wealth and power too. I mean, as a person who loves good deals, that's a great deal. What could be better than that? But as Daryl's message pointed out to us last week, if you were uh, able to join us, all this took place in quite a messy situation. This is King David's family tree. You think yours is complicated? When we get to chapter 3, King Solomon has to deal with all these uh, stepped into power, and he has to deal with all this drama in his family. But we knew he needed incredible wisdom, and he used that wisdom. But it's a spe uh, specifically a human wisdom. He orders the execution of his stepbrother Adonijah. 
is kind of in the middle and to the left of Solomon. When Adonijah asks Abishag to be his wife when she was promised, uh, when she was set apart to serve King David. Because if Adonijah married Abishag, that would make Adonijah the older son who is married and had the rightful right to the throne. So, and then so Solomon kills him. Solomon banishes Abiathar and has Job, the commander of David's army, killed, as well as Shimei, David, who, who David asked Solomon to preserve and promised to spare. So even though he's top dog, this is all happening in the first two chapters of 1 Kings. So even though he's top dog, Solomon goes ahead and kills off all of his opponents and enemies against the wishes of his father. Now I understand that I just listed a whole bunch of names that are seem really unfamiliar. The point is, is that with a family drama like that, Solomon didn't stay in power without using some of that wisdom that he had. Now, in, first, in chapter 3, we're told that Solomon is worshipping at, um, at, at, at Gibeon. And he offers sacrifices there to, to the worship of God. But he goes to Gibeon at this high place instead of Jerusalem, where the Ark of the Covenant was located. The place that represented God's presence. And at this high place in Gibeon, he makes this request for wisdom and hears from the living God in a dream. Now, these high places were places of worship to different gods that were scattered throughout the region. And commentators believe that Solomon chooses to offer sacrifices at this particular location, at this high place, not because he was particularly pious, but also, but also because this place served as a diplomatic nod to the northern kingdom of Israel and to the other people groups in the region. It's almost like Solomon was saying, see, I, I can do your religions too. So come, work with me. Solomon made an alliance, we're told, at the beginning of chapter 3, with Pharaoh by marrying Pharaoh's daughter. Egypt at the time was the local superpower. As you can see, Solomon was already quite full of guile and wisdom before he ever asked for wisdom from God. But he was using this wisdom to preserve his power, to make and rely on alliances for the security of his position, but also for the security of Israel, and to make calculated moves that he hoped would both please God and please the humans he was working with. Solomon's life demonstrates this double-sided impact of human nature. Solomon was blessed with incredible wisdom by God, and a particular kind of wisdom, but we cannot ignore how he used that divine gift. That's a double-sided, that double-sided nature echoes in a poem by Vietnamese Zen master and peace activist Thich Nhat Hanh. In his poem, Please Call Me By My True Names, he writes these, these words, I am a 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean and being raped after being raped by a sea pirate. But I'm also a pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. It's two sides of our human nature. You know, godly wisdom recognizes this double aspect of our human nature. Our wisdom is never as wise as we might think it to be. And Solomon has the humility to recognize this. In verses 7 and 8, Solomon makes this request for wisdom. And he seems to do so out of a place of humility. He's saying he's like a child. He's overwhelmed by the great needs of the people he's leading. He begins to see this goal of wisdom that he needs, which is to serve the people around him best. 
rather than just to preserve his power or Israel's power. Godly wisdom is not selfish wisdom, is not self-preserving wisdom. Godly wisdom is generous wisdom offered for the sake of the other. Now, we all face the temptation of mixing up godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. And we often like to call it godly wisdom based on the results that we see. We might think our wisdom wins because we get the recognition or because we get the authority that comes along with that exercising that wisdom. We might measure the success of our causes and our campaigns against injustice based on how much noise we make in the media. We might see that the way we invest our time and resources and measure success based on how much we're able to grow our investment accounts or advance our careers. We might even see that in the church with the celebrity leader and church growth that measure the wisdom of a church by the three B's of church growth and church health, by buildings, by bucks, and by butts. It doesn't mean that any of those strategies and measurements are purely worldly or uninspired by God. But we must attend to the goal of wisdom we seek. Is it for ourselves, or is it really for the good of those around us? Is it used ultimately for God's glory? Often the wisdom that, and the measure of success that we use is much more mixed than we like to think. This leads us to another aspect of godly wisdom. Godly wisdom is a gracious gift from God. It's not innate in us. It's not acquired by hard work. It's not acquired by careful observation and rigorous self-discipline. Godly wisdom isn't what some people are just born with and some people are blessed with. It's simply a gift of God to be received to anyone who would ask. In 1 Kings 3 verse 9, this is what Solomon says. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The English word here is translated discerning, discernment. Discernment is something that can come from experience and privilege. But ultimately, we see that discernment is a gift that comes from God. Though Solomon did have some innate wisdom, or probably a lot more innate wisdom than any of us do, at least I can say that, it was even recognized by his father David in the previous chapter. He lacked a discerning heart, or maybe your translation might say an understanding mind. The, un the Hebrew words for here for discerning heart are shama lev. Shama is, is, can be translated heart, I mean, uh, understand, discern, uh, or to hear. And lev is the Hebrew word for heart or mind. This focuses on the, the inner part of our human nature. That's the center of our emotion and our thought and of our will. It's the center of our decision making. Wisdom relies both on judgment and discernment. But judgment is about discerning, determining what's right or wrong, what's in, what's out, what's good, what's bad, what's false, and what's true. And these are very important things for us to do to make good decisions. But the sermon also seeks to understand and to respond appropriately to the situation. Judgment is often about 
determining the cold hard facts that help you to make the best decision. But discernment is about what you do with those facts, how you interpret them, and how those facts impact the people around you. Discernment stems from perception. And as Jesus followers, we believe that perception of true reality is a gift ultimately that comes from God. You know, in an age of alternative facts and politicized narratives, how much more important it is for godly wisdom to give us a sense of helpful discernment rather than mere judgment. Now, whatever political or ideological category you might find yourself more at home at, perhaps discernment is something the world can use a little more of now. You know, Solomon's request reminds us that true and godly discernment is a gift of God's grace to those who might humbly ask for it. Solomon's request for wisdom points to a wis wisdom as a grace received. But there's another characteristic of godly wisdom. It's not only a grace received, but it is a grace offered. Solomon spent his life ruminating over wisdom with the wisdom that he had received from God, and he graciously shares that wisdom in, this book of, in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs 9, that uh, Ben read for us, Solomon, Solomon personifies wisdom as a character, as lady wisdom, in verses 1 to 6. Now, lady wisdom is described as this house that she builds, set on top of the city, and lady wisdom has prepared a feast and invites all who recognize their simple ways to come and eat and drink of the food of wisdom. Now, the image of this house is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for a way of life. It's where your house is where you live and where you set things in order. Your house is where you find refuge and rest from the demands of life. But Lady Wisdom is not alone, we discover in Proverbs 9. We didn't have it read, but towards the latter half of this Proverbs, there, we discover there is another character who we might call Miss Folly. Miss Folly, too, we're told, sits at a house at the high point in the city and woos those passing by with her promises. In Proverbs 9, both Lady Wisdom and Miss Folly extend these invitations for people to turn towards their house, to their way of life. But we're not told whether Miss Folly builds her own house or whether she prepares a meal for others to share with. We are told, however, in verse 17, that she tempts with stolen water. Oh, wait, I'm not in the right place here. Verse 17. It's on the screen. Stolen water is sweet. Food is e eaten in secret is delicious. Now, biblical scholars throughout history have mused about whether Lady Wisdom refers to a particular person in the Trinity. Is Lady Wisdom the feminine aspect of God the Father? Or perhaps she reflects best the Spirit of God, as some early church fathers have proposed. Or maybe Lady Wisdom points to Jesus, the Son of God, who Paul, the Apostle Paul, refers to in 1 Corinthians when he says, Christ, the wisdom of God. Now, I think all these are very reasonable possibilities for us to reflect and behold God. But I don't think it's helpful to favor one view at the expense of others. Now, 
came across another intriguing approach that might be helpful. What if we read Lady Wisdom as pre prefiguring a type of a lady or a woman suitable to become the bride of an equally honorable and virtuous and intelligent and respected groom? Who might be the match for this honorable bride? Jesus Christ. Perhaps Lady Wisdom could be an image of the future bride of Christ, the Christian church. And as the people of God behold, uh, worship and behold the character of God, we become more like God in God's wisdom. And the image of Christ as groom and of the church as his bride is first used by Paul and later by many early church fathers. But also by in the Old Testament, when the Lord God calls Israel his bride. In this scenario, Lady Wisdom is united to Christ, but is distinct and separate from, separate from him. Lady Wisdom is considered created by God and endowed with the highest authority and respect. And perhaps this view of Lady Wisdom as the church helps us also make sense of another proverb, Proverbs 31. This particular proverb contains a description of what is commonly known as the Proverbs 31 wife, in quotes. Now, this, Proverbs, this proverb describes a noble and godly wife as the ultimate type A woman who not only supports her husband, but works vigorously, builds successful businesses, weaves her own clothes, makes her own bedding, runs her household like, clock, like a clock, and raises children that never talk back, but in fact say, Mom, you're so blessed. Now, depending on your gender, and depending on your marital status, and your level of faith and conviction, this particular proverb can either inspire you or crush you with its expectations. But what if Lady Wisdom, if Lady Wisdom points to Christ, uh, the church, not the Christ, to church as the bride of Christ, then all of us, all of us can read that proverb a little differently. These high expectations for productivity and honor and blessing aren't just for married women. These high expectations for productivity and honor are for the body of Christ. They are for every one of us who are followers of Jesus to embody together. Characterized by God's wisdom. It's not just married women who are called to industriousness and to be a blessing to the world, to bless the poor and needy, as Proverbs 31 describes. It's the church, as the body of Christ, who is called to be these things. And what if the church could be recognized in this way? Wouldn't it be seen as a gift to the world? Look at Proverbs uh, 31, verse 25 and 26, when, when she says, uh, let me find it, okay, she is clothed strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom and faithful and instruction is on her tongue. I wonder if we imagine the church to be described like that. What the world, how the world would view the church differently. If the church hears a call of Lady Wisdom, she finds she becomes Lady Wisdom for the world, welcoming the world into her house, into her way, her way of life. Read this way, wisdom isn't just something for leaders. Wisdom isn't just something for educated and the, the educated and the privileged. Wisdom isn't just an individual pursuit. Rather, wisdom is for everyone who comes to Jesus. Wisdom is for the whole people 
of God to become Lady Wisdom. Lady Wisdom would welcome all into a community of relationship, of justice, of love, of righteousness, and of beauty. Together, we as the body of Christ become this beautiful bride of Christ offered to the world to point people to Christ. How do we become this beautiful bride that gives life to the world? Through the way of wisdom. The way of wisdom ultimately is the way of Jesus. Like Lady Wisdom, who extends an invitation to all to come into her house, to her way of life, and to share in this feast prepared by Lady Wisdom. We find Jesus makes that same invitation even clearer in the texts of John chapter 6. Here, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of this world. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. And just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. You know, those who are attentive to hear the invitation of Jesus, those who humbly recognize the wisdom of his way of life, those who depend on him and his word like it is their food and their drink, find themselves on the way of true wisdom. Like Solomon, those who recognize their limits, as high as those limits might be by human standards, will find themselves brought into the wise ways of Jesus and in his kingdom. We find life. We find goodness. We find love and beauty and hope in Christ. And it's this life of wisdom in Christ that can be shared generously with the world. In a few moments, we will come together to the communion table and feed on Jesus, that we may walk in his way of wisdom. May we, as the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ, graciously offer ourselves to the world as Christ has graciously offered himself to us first. Amen.